0: Alright, uh, so good morning, once again, welcome to Lake Forest Davidson, my name's Gray, one of the pastors on staff here, and today we are wrapping up a series we've been doing for about a month and a half or so called Illustrations, and, and Illustrations, we've been looking at people throughout the Bible who have something to teach us about faith, and like I said, today we are wrapping up this series, and we're wrapping it up with a guy named Gideon. And Gideon, a lot of you guys might have heard of Gideon, but I think a lot, a lot of people don't know much about who Gideon. Now it seems really loud about who Gideon is. Um, so we're going to look at, we're going to look into that a little bit today. So Gideon shows up in the Old Testament book of Judges, which is the seventh book of the Bible. And to get a clue about what's going on with Gideon, I'm going to give us a tiny bit of context just so we get caught up and we know uh, kind of where in the story we're coming in. So as Holly mentioned last week, in the book of Genesis, we read about how God chose this guy named Abraham to be the father of his chosen people. And this chosen people, it was their job to show the world who God was, through justice and caring for people, caring for the world. And things went pretty well for a while, uh, and then started to get a little shaky, um, but then because of the famine, Abraham's descendants, a couple generations later, ended up down in Egypt. And there, again, things went pretty well for a while, for a couple hundred years, actually, but then things took a turn for the worse, Um, And ultimately, the Israelites became enslaved. They were getting a little too strong. Egyptians got nervous. And so the Israelites became enslaved in Egypt. And then in the book of Exodus, you see this guy named Moses who leads the Israelites out of slavery. You remember parting of the Red Sea? You might have heard a a great sermon about this a few weeks ago. So the the Israelites, uh, they, they then escape through the Red Sea, and they're out in the wilderness. And things start to get hard. They are wandering around for a while. God has promised that they're going to this promised land. God says, there's this land I'm taking you to, but they're they're wandering around, and they're getting hungry. They're getting thirsty. A lot of them want to go back to Egypt. And so, again, things start off pretty well, but then end up kind of taking a turn for the worse. And it's not until after Moses dies, the guy who follows Moses up, his name is Joshua. That's the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua. And so Joshua is the guy who leads the Israelites into the promised land. And so they get there where, again, they're supposed to worship God, love the world, show the world who God is in freedom, though, in their own land. And once again, this goes pretty well for a little while, uh, but ends up getting kind of bad. They don't do this. They, they turn from God and start worshiping other gods. They forget about Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt. And so this brings us to the book of Judges, where the Israelites, had uh, they been invaded time and time again by these, these other nations, And every time there's an invasion, every time another nation comes and takes over, uh, a, a person named a judge, hence the name Judges, a judge is lifted up to kind of step into this military leader role in a time of crisis and free Israel from the invaders. And so Gideon is one of these judges. And we pick up the story, the Israelites have been invaded by this group called the Midianites. So Gideon, leader of the Israelites, they got the Midianites who are invading and so the Midianites, they're not, they are not—they didn't invade and occupy in the traditional sense. What they would do is instead of, again, occupying, they, they'd roll in with their camels every time harvest was due, and they'd take all the harvest. So they'd let the Israelites grow their crops. The Israelites would be, you know, faithfully planting, cultivating, crops would grow. But right at the time of harvest, Midianites come into town, push everybody around, and take the grain so the Israelites, this went on for a few years. Israelites had used up all their food reserves and they began to starve. And in chapter 6, verse 6, we read that after seven years, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they finally cried out to the Lord for help. All right, there's your context. So now i are moving to the actual Gideon part. So this is the situation. This is the scene when we meet Gideon. In Judges 6, chapter 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and ophir that belonged to Joash the Abderzite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat and a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then Gideon responds, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon had been told stories of how centuries ago God had saved the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians how he, he brought down food to the starving Israelites in the desert. He heard time and time again these stories of how God had loved and cared for his people. But what he was seeing around him seemed like the opposite. It seemed like God's, God's people had been brought to this promised land only for them to be invaded and harassed by the nations around them. And we see Gideon, uh, when the story picks up with him, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Not a lot of us thresh wheat nowadays. So to thresh wheat, what you do is you go up on top of the hill and you use something called a widowing fork and you scoop up the wheat, you throw it in the air and then the, uh, the grain falls back down but the husk, the chaff kind of blows off by the wind. That's why you're on top of the hill. But Gideon instead is in a wine press which is pretty much like a pit dug in the ground. Two, two sets of pits and you stomp on the grapes and then you press on the grapes and the, the juice runs down to the lower pit. So instead of being on top of the hill, he is down in a pit. And to, to thresh wheat in a pit would be like cutting your lawn with scissors. I mean it would take forever, it'd be really frustrating, would not work very well. But he has to do it in this pit because any wheat that the Midianites see they're gonna take. So he's doing it in a wine press to hide. This is kind of his, his secret wheat operation. And his, his location in this pit though is reflective of, of reality, both physically in his life, but also spiritually. He's 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 down low. He's in a pit. And we read in verse 11 that he's working beside an oak. It's reference to a, a specific tree, an oak that belonged to Joash. And these, these specific trees are often used as uh, something called an Asherah pole. And many commentators say that this oak in verse 11 is his father's Asherah pole. And this is an important point. What is an Asherah pole though? So Asherah was the name of a, a goddess that other people in this part of the world worshiped. And an Asherah pole is like a a sacred tree that's been kind of curated to look, I guess, pleasing to Asherah. I'm not sure. Or it's just a a pole. So like a a dead tree to, again, all this to honor the goddess Asherah. And so Gideon's father has one of these poles on his land uh, to honor this foreign goddess. And that, that raises the question for me, at least, why would an Israelite, why would someone of God's chosen people have an altar to a foreign god? And what we saw is that, that many of Israel's neighbors, like the Bineites, who worshipped gods like Asherah, they were thriving while Israel was suffering. And the fact that Israel was suffering and the nations around them were doing so well led many people to ask the question, which God's actually the strongest? And it seems like their God's are a little stronger than ours, given what I'm seeing around them. And maybe given what they'd seen, some folks were thinking about changing teams. And a number of Israelites did. They, they saw the success of these other gods and began to worship them with the hope that maybe this would work out better. We're going to try something else. And this is what Gideon's father, Joash, had done. Uh, verse 25 tells us that Gideon's father had both an altar to Baal, which is another god, as well as an Asherah pole. So as far as Joash could see, the whole god thing had worked out very well. He was willing to try something else. It would have been seven years. So that's the situation. Um, but like I said, in, in verse 11, we read that the angel of the Lord came and sat under this Asherah pole to speak to Gideon. And this is no small, minor detail. God, after rescuing his people from Egypt, only to see them turn away, in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, the angel of the Lord comes and sits under the very symbol of their unfaithfulness, the Asherah pole, and offers Gideon the words, the Lord is with you. So here we see a God who is willing to enter the darkness to reach his people. The Asherah pole couldn't keep God away. The Asherah pole would be dealt with, but the Lord first meets Gideon. So the... The message for this morning is is that God will meet us right where we are. Gideon didn't have to get his life in order before God met him. He didn't have to tear down the ash for a pole or destroy the altar before God would show up. He didn't have to overcome all of his doubts before God would have a conversation. And the same goes for us. Your life might be a mess. God often meets us in that mess. We don't, we don't have to clean things up before God will show up. And this speaks to, to those of us who might be meeting God, uh, might be considering faith in God for the first time. But it also speaks to those of us who might have been Christians, might have been coming to church for a long time. Well, we've kind of let things get a little stagnant. We've allowed some of the mess to creep back in. Uh, we've started to ignore or hide some things, started to get comfortable with some things that we know uh, we shouldn't be getting comfortable with. And God will meet you again in the midst of that mess too. Wherever you are, there is no situation that's too messy, it's too messed up for God to show up. That's what we see in Gideon. God's willingness to meet us and his desire to meet with us holds true into the New Testament as well. We see this in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, which is one of the most popular stories about Jesus out there. It's a story, some of you might have heard of, where a woman is caught in adultery, and the teachers and the Pharisees are going to stone her. They're going to kill her for getting caught with adultery. And Jesus says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at it. And slowly all the teachers and the Pharisees walked away, and then it was just Jesus and this woman sitting there. And Jesus asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus responded, then neither do I condemn you. As I mentioned, this is one of the most popular stories we hear about Jesus, even in secular culture. Um, Hannah B. from The Bachelorette quoted it this season. So they told me, at least. Um, uh, And it's popular because it, it elevates God's compassion over God's wrath. God's judgment. And this is true about God, even in the Old Testament and the New. We see this in how the angel of the Lord met Gideon under the Asherah tree in the midst of Gideon's disregard for God, in the midst of Gideon's distrust for God, and his worship of other gods. Yet people often forget the last line of that story. The last words Jesus says to that woman. After saying, neither do I condemn you. Jesus tells her, Go now and leave your life of sin. Anna B forgot that part. <laughs> for, uh, and, and for centuries, the church has really struggled with the balance of these two ideas. The, the balance of neither do I condemn you and leave your life of sin. Folks in the, in the liberal church will often err on the neither do I condemn you side. Where the act of labeling something as a sin is thought of as a, a personal condemnation. And through this, we can end up worshiping a very small God who doesn't challenge us and doesn't say anything we don't like. Folks on the conservative church often err on the lead your life of sin side, where we often feel the weight of needing to show how serious we are about our faith and are often crippled by the pressure of placating an angry God who's tired of our antics and uh, honestly doesn't really like us that much when it comes down to it. And this group thinks that the, the neither do I condemn you Cozies up a little too close with sin. But we see in the words of Jesus that he expresses both. Then neither do I condemn you, and go now and leave your life of sin. And, and some of you know, a year ago I became a dad, and this, this ability to live in both worlds there became a lot, a lot clearer to me, it helped me understand this balance. So we have a, a one-year-old daughter, her name is Isla, And there's nothing she could do that would ever make me stop loving her. She's my daughter. Nothing can change that. There's nothing she could do. I'll always love her no matter what. But it doesn't mean I have to be indifferent about the life she lives. If anything, my love for her makes me care more. I want her to make good decisions for herself and for the people around her. I don't want to see her in pain. But my love for her is not contingent on me condoning bad ideas that she thinks are good ideas. And so we've seen in the story of Gideon that God in his patient love for us meets us where we are in the midst of our struggle, disobedience, and deceit. God can, will, and has gone there. But God doesn't want us to stay there. During the meeting with Gideon under the Asherah pole, uh, in the midst of Gideon's doubts and unfaithfulness, God reassures Gideon, Again, in the midst of the doubt and unfaithfulness, God reassures Gideon by by telling him, I am sending you, and I will be with you. And, And from this, Gideon's faith begins to grow. And then God proves himself to Gideon. And in verse 22, Gideon is all in. He says, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So like I said, Gideon is all in at this point. And it's at that point that God turns back to deal with the Asherah pole. Read this in in chapter 6, verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So God tells Gideon the Asherah pole has to go. The Asherah pole is not only a lie, it's not only dishonoring to God, but it's a barrier to Gideon's faith. For Gideon to grow, this has to be dealt with. Gideon knows God's law is clear about worshiping other gods. The tree must be cut down and burnt. Gideon knows some things have to change if they're going to move forward. And again, here we've set into a bit of a trap, a place Christianity has often been misunderstood. So Gideon lived before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But as we think about reading his story today, in light of that knowledge, to say that Gideon has to do something to move forward sounds an awful lot like works righteousness. Sounds an awful lot like Gideon earning God's love. But God's love for Gideon is already established. We saw him in God showing up at the Asherah tree. And so God asking Gideon to destroy the Asherah pole was not about earning love. It was about building Gideon's faith. And hear me very clearly. Uh, salvation through Jesus is completely free. Period. Jesus said to himself, it is finished. It's free. But discipleship, growing in your faith, following Christ will cost you your life. Jesus says this a lot. He's clear about it. Mark 8, he told a crowd and his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And throughout the series, we looked, at, we looked at people, exemplars of faith, and each of their faith has grown at a cost. They were loved by God for free, but their faith has grown at a cost. And God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, here's what's holding you back from trusting me more, from growing in your faith. It's that tree. So go cut it down. And there's no threat of punishment if he doesn't. But I suspect allowing this tree to stand will leave his faith a little stagnant, a little weaker, and slowly eroding at the edges. It'll leave his faith feeling only somewhat real, because there's this constant reminder up on that hill about how he's serious, but not really that serious. And that reminder that he's trusting in something other than God. So he needs to cut down that tree. And some of us here this morning might be feeling that our faith is a little stacked. Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells a, a story about how a student of his came to him and the student was struggling with, with their faith and they were hoping Bonhoeffer could help him. And so the student said, yeah, I'm struggling sure with my faith. And Bonhoeffer said, are you being obedient? And in terms of today's sermon, that question would be, is there an Asherah pole that needs to be cut down? And here in the, the 21st century, there aren't many of us that worship Asherah. But we've turned to other things for peace or success or, or fulfillment in the same way Joe Ash and Gideon turned to Asherah. Maybe for you, in, instead of the Asherah pole, it's the materialism pole that tells you if you get that next thing, then you'll be good. Maybe instead of the Asherah pole, it's the image pole, which tells you if you can cater and develop how people see you and think about you, be it in person, social media, your reputation, whatever. That that deep sense of longing for status and belonging will finally be at peace. Those waters will finally be still. Maybe instead of the Astral pole, it's the achievement pole, which tells you if you, can, if you can carve out a place above the rest, if you can establish yourself as elite, then you'll finally be okay with who you are. So I don't know what it is for you. The Holy Spirit gives, gives the power to know. But more importantly, the will to see it cut down. I know cutting it down is a, a scary thing to do. Gideon himself was scared. We read a couple of verses later in verse 27 that just just after Gideon had been told to cut down the tree, we read. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So Gideon was afraid. It's a, it's a scary thing to do, no doubt. He was concerned his family would get upset, that his friends would get upset. But he did it, and he went on from there to lead the Israelites free from the Midianites, and, and God used him as a part of his story. And his faith rested upon those words that the angel of the Lord spoke under the Asherah tree, I will be with you. And the message to us today is the same, We read them in the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So hold hold on to those words of Jesus. God himself, who, like the angel of the Lord, came under the Asherah pole, he entered, like the angel of the Lord who came under the Asherah pole, he entered our broken world, lived a perfect life, yet was cut down and killed by the world he came to save. And three days later, we see that life came bursting forth through him. And it's through his example and through his power and presence in us that we're able to step courageously in faith, trusting that out of death comes life, out of endings come new beginnings, and out of fear we can find faith. Please pray for me.